Good evening. And pleasant Sabbath again. As the elder was saying, it's good to meet together in the house of God on Sabbath. Amen. And tonight we are down to the next to last presentation in our series. Can you believe we're almost done? It's gone by very fast. It's hard to believe that we're all the way towards the end of the book of Daniel. And tonight we are going to be looking at the last section of Daniel chapter 11, which is probably one of the most important but perhaps least studied sections in the Adventist church. So I'm looking forward to going through these verses this evening. Before we do that, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. And I pray that you will be with us as we go through these last few verses of Daniel chapter 11. And as we see the signs around us, may we be awake to the fact that you're coming with Jesus in the clouds as very soon. So be with us this evening, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, on Wednesday evening we got through the first 40 verses of Daniel chapter 11. And... Tonight, we are going to go verses 41 to 45 and look just at the first phrase of Daniel chapter 12 because it's a, a continuing thought. Now, in our previous presentation, I read a few quotes that I'm going to read just for the sake of reminding us just how important this chapter is. Now, how many of you were here on Wednesday night when we went through the first 40 verses? So most of you, so that's good. This is just a brief review. The Testimonies, Volume 9, page 11 says, The agencies of evil are combining their forces and consolidating. They are strengthening for the last great crisis. Great changes are soon to take place in our world, and the final movements will be rapid ones. You know... What's happening right now, even here in Trinidad, with this limited state of emergency? This is just a little foretaste of what's going to happen at the very end. Because at the end, they're going to declare martial law like this, but it's going to be for all day, every day. Now, I don't know when that's going to happen. I'm just saying there is coming a time where around the world, whether it's Trinidad or the United States or wherever, this is what, what it's going to be like all the time. So praise God, even in this limited state of emergency, we can be here tonight, amen? amen. Alright, and then continuing, this connects to Daniel 11, Testimonies, Volume 9, page 14. The world is stirred with the spirit of war. The prophecy of the 11th chapter of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Soon, the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. So when you read that last sentence there, she refers to it as scenes of trouble. So when we look at the last few verses of Daniel 11, there is a, a, a key element that's very positive, but there's also a lot of trouble packed into those last few verses. So when we look at verses 41 through 45, we are going to see scenes of trouble that she's speaking of. Now, I also read a quote from Manuscript Releases, volume 13, page 394, that talks about how the history that had been fulfilled already in Daniel 11 would be repeated. And I'm just going to 
read the bolded part here. The prophecy in the 11th of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. Then she quotes verses 30 through 36, and then she says, scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. Now, what we saw in those verses, 30 through 36, was that military force stood up on behalf of the King of the North or Papal Rome. That will be repeated, and we've already seen a fulfillment of that to some extent in the last half of verse 40, and we talked about that with the alliance that President Reagan of the United States and John Paul II of the Vatican formed, and they came together to bring down Eastern Europe and communism and the Soviet Union in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So that part of the history has already started to repeat itself, as Ellen White said it would. Then we also saw in Daniel 11 verse 31 that it talks about the abomination of desolation, which is the union of church and state. That part of the history will be repeated, and that point is yet future. There may be limited, isolated cases of church-state union where the papacy is regaining supremacy, but globally speaking, it has not happened yet. So that's still in the future, and we're going to talk about that. Then when church and state unite in the, with the abomination of desolation, persecution follows just as it did during the 1260 years when church and state united in what is known as the abomination of desolation. It's an abomination for the church, which is supposed to represent God, to unite itself with the world. And when they do that, persecution of God's true people follow that happened in the dark ages during the 1260 years Daniel 11 33 through 35 talk about that but then we saw that the king of the north received a deadly wound at the 1260 at the end of the 1260 years and it will receive its final death so to speak at the end of Daniel 11 so that's kind of where we are headed that's the big picture military force supporting the king of the north or papal room church and state uniting persecution of the saints and then the final end of papal room so that's in a nutshell what we're going to look at. So when we look at the very next verse, because we went through verse 40, this is what we read. He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. Now just by way of curiosity, how many of you have spent time studying the glorious land at the end of Daniel 11? Okay, well that's not necessarily a bad thing because I won't necessarily be contending with various opinions on this. There are a couple of different schools of thought on this, but I'm going to try to show you from the Bible why I believe what I believe the glorious land is. Because once we understand what the glorious land is, and here's the key point. It says the king of the north is going to enter into the glorious land. And it says, in the King James, it says, many countries shall be overthrown. But the word countries is actually a supplied word, so it really should read, and many shall be overthrown. Now, the glorious land 
was first seen in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 16, referring to literal Judea. This was the land of Daniel's people. So the glorious land for Daniel was his homeland, Israel. And he was a captive. Well, actually, by this time, he was a, a servant in the court or high up in the court of Medo-Persia. But Judea, Jerusalem, that would always be his homeland. And the glorious land in Daniel 11, verse 16, when it talks about how Rome would enter into the glorious land there, that was referring to literal Israel. However, in verse 40, we see a shift to the time of the end where the king of the south pushes at the king of the north or gives the king of the north a deadly wound. We saw in our study, what year did the time of the end begin? Do you remember? 1798. I heard several of you mention that, so that's good. The time of the end began in 1798. That's when France gave Papal Rome, a deadly wound when the Pope was taken captive by General Berthier of Napoleon. And the King of the South is referred to as, as the power that gives the deadly wound to Papal Rome. And we saw that the King of the South was atheistic France initially, beginning in 1798. Now, when we studied the first 30 verses of Daniel 11, we saw that Egypt was always the King of the South. But France, atheistic France, represented spiritual Egypt once the time of the end began. And in fact, in Revelation 11 verse 8, it talks about a power that would be called spiritually Sodom and Egypt. So the Bible itself says there will be a spiritual Egypt at the end of time that would rise up against Papal Rome at the end of the 1260 years. So what I'm saying is, is that at the time of the end, when we look at, for example, the King of the South and the Glorious Land, they are not the same exact thing as they were in the first 30 verses. In the first 30 verses, they were literal nations in specific locations of that time, but at the time of the end, they represent spiritual powers that may have literal locations, but they represent the same spirit of the powers that preceded them. So with the king of the south, you have spiritual Egypt being France, because Egypt was atheistic, and Ellen White corroborates that. And then we now see that as the king of the north makes a comeback, and we saw that at the end of verse 40, he makes a comeback with chariots, horsemen, many ships. He enters into the countries and passes over. He makes a comeback against atheism, against communism. We saw that after atheistic France rose up onto the scene to bring atheism back to life at the time of the end, we saw that the Communist Manifesto was written in 1844 in France. That gave rise to communist Europe and the Soviet Union, but we saw that the United States and Papal Rome teamed up together to bring communism down and the end of verse 40 saw most if not all of its fulfillment by the late 1980s and early 1990s. So then the very next thing in the prophecy that we will expect to see after the fall of communism 
is in verse 41 where it says, He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many shall be overthrown. Now the glorious land, if the king of the south represented spiritual Egypt, and if the glorious land was Judea or Israel in the first part of the chapter, then it would reason that the glorious land would represent God's people at the last days. Because in the first part of the chapter, the glorious land represents God's people. And in the last half of the part of the chapter, it would also stand to reason that the glorious land would represent God's people. Now, one other way that I explain this is to jump ahead to verse 45, because in verse 45, it talks about the glorious holy mountain. And it talks about how the king of the north shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Now this is where things become interesting. And I invite you to turn to Joel chapter 2 verse 32, which gives us a description of the glorious holy mountain. And here Joel 2.32 says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So here in Joel chapter 2 verse 32, it describes Mount Zion, which is in Jerusalem, and it gives a spiritual term for what Mount Zion and Jerusalem represent, and it describes Mount Zion and Jerusalem as the remnant. Now, have you heard of the remnant in Bible prophecy? Revelation 12, 17, here the dragon was wroth with the remnant of her seed, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. There is a church at the end of time, the church that we are part of, that keeps all the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. Now, Joel 2.32 shows that Mount Zion and Jerusalem represent the remnant in the last days. In Psalms 48, verses 1 and 2, it shows that Mount Zion is described as the mountain of holiness or God's holy mountain. So Mount Zion is the glorious holy mountain, which is Jerusalem. But Joel 2.32 says that this represents the remnant. One other verse I will give you is that if you just stick to the book of Daniel itself, in Daniel 9.16, in Daniel's prayer, when he's praying to the Lord, he prays regarding thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. So it seems in the Bible that the writers in the Bible use Jerusalem, the holy mountain, and the remnant interchangeably. And at the end of time, the glorious holy mountain represents God's remnant church. Now, what does that mean with respect to the glorious holy mountain? Because if you look at a map, and if we go back to the map, Jerusalem, and I'll just point to it, Jerusalem is right here. It's a small little area within the entire glorious land or the entire area of Judea, just one small part. So how do we then come to an understanding of what the glorious land is versus the glorious holy mountain? 
Now, I give this illustration just to show you that, and I gave this presentation one time in Baltimore, Maryland, and I simply use the illustration to show that if I am in Baltimore, Maryland, that's a city in the United States, that I am in the United States of America while I am in Baltimore, Maryland. But if I'm in the state of California, I would still be in the United States, but I would not be in Baltimore, Maryland anymore. Do you see the point? So my point is, is that you can be in the glorious holy mountain, which is in Jerusalem, and be still in the glorious land, but you could be outside of Jerusalem and be in the glorious land, but not in the glorious holy mountain. Does that make sense, or should I explain it one more time? I'll just say it one more time, and let me go back to the map. This area here is the glorious land, and this small area here is the glorious holy mountain. So if I'm in the glorious holy mountain, I'm also in the glorious land, right? But if I'm up here in the northern part or the southern part, I'm still in the glorious land, but I'm now outside of the glorious holy mountain. So let me move ahead. So I'm going to share with you a couple of options as far as what I believe these entities represent, the glorious land and the glorious holy mountain. I believe that the glorious holy mountain represents the worldwide Seventh-day Adventist church, the remnant church of Bible prophecy. Because when you look at what happens, you see that the king of the north plants the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, but he never overruns it. So. I believe that what this may represent is the purified people of the Seventh-day Adventist Church who remain within the organization. They don't go running off and starting their own splinter groups or whatever you want to call them. They stay with the, the organization because it's the organization that God has raised up to preserve a people through to the very end with a specific message. And they are the ones who survive the shaking. The glorious land, there's two options. And I'm not dogmatic about this. The first one could be that it's worldwide Protestant Christianity, those who profess the name of Christ, and that would include the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The second option would be that it is pre-shaken Seventh-day Adventists, or those Seventh-day Adventists who are in the church before the shaking takes place. And if, as I study this, I might lean towards the second option a little bit more, but the point is, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 41, it says, the king of the north enters into the glorious land, and many shall be overthrown. Now, when the king of the north enters into the glorious land, this does not mean that suddenly papal Rome has taken over the Seventh-day Adventist church. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying, I believe, is that when it enters into the glorious land, it now has power over God's professed people. Now, how would papal Rome have power over God's professed people? Papal Rome would have power over God's professed people if there are laws that are enacted that restrict how God's people have been always able to worship. Does that make sense? And so up until 
a certain point in time, God's professed people, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, they've always been able to worship on the seventh day of the week, but suddenly the King of the North has entered in and now has power over them, so they are not able to worship in the way that they once were able to. Now it's interesting, when you look at what happens, it says many shall be overthrown, and again, the word countries in verse 41 is supplied, many shall be overthrown, that suggests that there are many of God's people who will be overthrown when papal Rome takes action at the end of time. And in fact, Ellen White says this very thing in Great Controversy, page 608. Here she says, as the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition by uniting with the world and partaking of its spirit they have come to view matters in nearly the same light and when the test is brought they are prepared to choose the easy popular side men of talent and pleasing address who once rejoiced in the the truth employ their powers to deceive and mislead souls so remember when Ellen White says soon the scenes of trouble will take place this is not going to be a pleasant time when people who once professed the belief in our message decide to say you know what it's going to be too hard to stay in the Adventist church now because I might lose my job and I might lose my life even and um, I'm not even sure if it's really a salvational issue which day I go anyway so I'm going to go with the easy side now. And you know, the key, one of the key points in this sentence is the people who will abandon the faith are those who have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth. So here's something to think about very carefully. If you believe that you don't need to be sanctified to be saved, you're setting yourself up to go the wrong way when the last great test comes. Because sanctification is a sign of, or let me put it this way, the Sabbath, which is the day that we worship on, is a sign of our sanctification. We worship on the seventh day Sabbath because it is a sign that God sanctifies us. That's Ezekiel chapter 20. Now, if we say that sanctification doesn't matter at all, when Sabbath comes, basically what we're saying is Sabbath doesn't really matter either. Because the Sabbath is a sign of our sanctification. And if we live a life, let me just use perhaps an extreme example, but I think it will serve its point. If we go out and get drunk on alcohol every night of the week, and we come home and beat our wife, and swear and this and that and whatever, but, as soon as the sun goes down on Sabbath, we don't touch alcohol at all for 24 hours. And we come to the church services, and we're here on church, at church on Sabbath, we are keeping the day to the letter of the law. We don't go out and eat. We don't do anything. We observe it perfectly. Now, in our mind, we can't wait for the sun to go down so that we can go back to the alcohol as soon as the sun sets. Seriously, is that Sabbath keeping? No, yeah, that's not. You are not keeping the spirit of the Sabbath. The point is, is that the Sabbath 
Our experience on Sabbath is supposed to represent our walk with Christ all week long. It's a day that we've been looking forward to all week because Jesus is our best and dearest friend. He's transformed our lives. And Sabbath is a day that we don't have to worry about the business of this world. So when Sabbath comes, we look forward to it and we're sorry when the sun goes down. That special time set aside, our date with the Lord has come and gone. But if we say, you know what? We don't need to worry about sanctification. Sanctification isn't really part of salvation. We can just be forgiven but not cleansed. We can be forgiven but not changed. It doesn't really matter what we do. When the final crisis comes, we're going to say, you know what? God's been a God of grace my whole life. He just covers me no matter what I do. And if because my life is on the line now, surely He will understand if I start observing the laws of men that go against the law of God because his grace will cover me and he will understand. I'll go with the easy popular side because the whole world's doing it. But if we understand that we keep the Sabbath not just arbitrarily because God says so, but also because the Sabbath is a sign of the transforming power of Christ's righteousness in our lives, then when the final crisis comes, we will recognize the counterfeit of the law that will change the day of worship, that will force us, if, if we... Uh, unless we decide to stand up against it, that will force us to worship on a day that we know the Bible has not authorized. So, let's continue. When the king of the north enters into the glorious land, I believe that this represents the abomination of desolation repeating itself in history. And remember, Ellen White said, much of the history that has taken place will be repeated. Scenes similar will take place. And we saw military power standing on, on behalf of papal Rome, abomination of desolation, which is union of church and state, persecution of the saints, and then finally the deadly wound. Now this picture here, of course, has President Obama of the United States and Pope Benedict. I'm not predicting anything. This slide does not suggest that I believe that the Sunday law is going to happen while Obama is president. The way things are going for him, he might not be president much longer anyway. But, and I'm, that's not, I'm not taking sides, I'm just saying. What we see, and I showed a picture in my last presentation of President Clinton and the two President Bushes kneeling before John Paul II. Here you see Obama has a very friendly relationship with the Pope. It's a very different world now. The United States and the papacy are in much closer alliance than they ever were before. And so the conditions are becoming riper for Papal Rome and the United States to come together. Now, Testimonies, Volume 6, page 18. As America, the land of religious liberty, shall unite with the papacy, enforcing the conscience and compelling men to honor the false Sabbath, the people of every country on the globe will be compelled to follow her example. So notice, it's not just going to be in America, it's going to be here in Trinidad too. And then Great Controversy 588, the Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the Gulf to grasp the hands with the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome and trampling on the rights of conscience. Now, I talked about this, I believe, in Daniel 6, that there are four stages of a Sunday law. 
It's not like we're going to wake up tomorrow morning and find out that if we go to church on Sabbath and don't go to church on Sunday that we're going to be put to death. That's not exactly how it's going to happen. There's four stages and you can write down the references but the first stage is that we will be told that we need to take Sunday off completely, that you can't work for any reason. Now down here in Trinidad it's already a lot like this more so than in the, in the United States. Where I come from, Sunday businesses are open everywhere. Everything's open for business. It's a day for them to make money. It's still like that. Down here, when I moved down here, I realized there's certain things that you just have to do Monday to Friday because you're not going to be able to get it done on Sunday the way we would do back in the States. But anyway, the first stage, refrain from working on Sunday. But then, as the crisis heats up, they're going to say, you know what? Not only can you not work on Sunday, but you've got to honor Sunday. It's sort of like what happened to the three Hebrews in Daniel chapter 3, where they were told to bow down and worship the image. And nobody was telling them that they couldn't pray to the true God of heaven, but they were told that they had to bow down to the image. And as things escalate, we will be told, listen, you can still go to church on Sabbath, but you have to worship on Sunday as well. This is the day that we are proclaiming to be a holy day that you must worship on. But then it will escalate further to the point that you cannot worship on the Sabbath, only on Sunday. Fines and imprisonment will be imposed. And then finally... There will be the death penalty to those who worship Sabbath and disregard Sunday. And what I see in Daniel chapter 11 is I, I believe that the first two phases are probably in verse 41 where the king of the north enters into the glorious land and then the final two phases are going to happen in verses 44 and 45 because something very significant happens when the Sunday law takes place and that is that the loud cry gains force. We'll talk about that. I just wanted to show you something very recent from the United States. This was written in July, about a month ago, in North Dakota, because North Dakota just recently passed a law saying that all businesses must be closed on Sunday. Now this is kind of a new thing, and one of my friends here actually shared this with me on Facebook, so th thank you. Um, and I'm just gonna point out, the North Dakota Catholic Conference has responded to criticism of a law restricting Sunday hours for businesses, saying the, regulations, the regulation benefits the whole of society. They say the purpose of North Dakota's Sunday closing law is not to impose times of worship, nor is it to demand adherence to religious doctrine. The purpose of the law is to preserve the common good by ensuring that society is not overtaken by work and profit, wrote Christopher Dodson, executive director of the North Dakota Catholic Conference. Courts uphold Sunday closing laws have recognized what the form does not, because there's people who disagree, um, noting that the laws serve a secular, not religious purpose. He said that all people need periods of rest and free time for the sake of their families, social lives, and religious activities. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? We all need periods of rest, free time, and you know, time for our family and religious activities. So we're not trying to enforce religion, religious doctrine on you. I mean, you, you, you realize the devil's subtle, he's not going to just come straight in with a death decree. He's going to be like, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea for people to just have some time off? 
And um, you'll actually get rested up and your body will feel more refreshed. We're not trying to do anything here. But, that's, but what they're doing is they're setting a stage to take things further. Once they get the society conditioned to having it as a day of rest, then they can enforce more things with it. Um, and he closes by saying, Sunday closing laws are not about honoring the Sabbath day. They are about honoring people and families. Well, that's interesting. Now, let's continue on. When you come to the end of verse 41, it talks about how certain countries will escape out of the hand. Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to have to go pretty fast through the next few verses. But it talks about how Edom, Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon are going to escape out of the hand of the king of the north. Now, if you go to Isaiah chapter 11, and I, I, I would encourage you to write that down for a reference, it talks about how the remnant of God will be recovered a second time. And they will be set up with an ensign or an ensign, which is the seventh day Sabbath. And it talks about the same group of people who will follow the remnant who are recovered the second time. This is referring to the seventh day Adventist movement just before Jesus comes. And we see that the Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites will be recovered. Now, if you know from the Old Testament who the Edomites, Moabites, and the Ammonites are, it becomes easier to understand who they are. And again, they're on this map. They were to the east and south of literal Israel, but Moab and Ammon were the two sons born to Lot's two daughters after he fled Sodom. Do you remember that story? Sodom and Gomorrah, the effect on Lot's daughters is very clear, but these were the nations that came from Lot and his daughters. And then Edom represented the, the nation that came from Esau. Now, the thing that's interesting is that all three of those nations were relatives of God's people, the Israelites. Esau was the brother of Israel. And then Moab and Ammon were cousins. So they are relatives, but they were on the outside. They were not part of God's people. And this is why I tend to favor the idea that the glorious land represents pre-shaken Seventh-day Adventism and the glorious holy mountain represents those who remain. Because what happens is the king of the north comes into the glorious land. Many go out, those who have not been sanctified by obedience to the truth. But then it talks about those who come in, the Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites. And specifically, it's interesting, in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, it actually talks about how God calls the Edomites, he says, they are called by my name. So here they are, they're not, they're not really inside where God's people are, but God says, I have called you by name, which is interesting. When you come to the final warning message to the world, God says to Babylon, come out of her, my people. So I believe that the Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites are those who are living in spiritual Babylon, yet they have been living up to all the light that they have. They are called by God's name, and God says, come out of her, my people. And as the king of the north comes in and sets up a Sunday law, many of God's profess people who haven't really been following him, they go out, but those who have been outside of the church, who have been living up to the light that they have, when they see the truth, they will come in. 
And so Daniel 11 shows what's going to happen by sequence here. And let me see if there's any other verses I should give you. Amos 9, 11, and 12, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 14, um, Acts chapter 15, verses 16 and 17 also quotes Amos 9, and instead of referring to the Edomites, it substitutes the word Gentiles. So these could be spiritual Gentiles that are in Babylon who will come in. So those are just a few verses for your reference. Now let's go on to verse 42. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape, verse 43, but he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. Now this is interesting. You have Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia, and if you've paid any attention to the news this year, Egypt and Libya have been part of the news. And I, I smile when I hear people say, hey, uh, this could be the fulfillment of Daniel 11. There's only one problem. <clears throat> if you study Daniel 11 carefully, there is no way that the literal nation of Egypt or the little, literal nation of Libya by itself could have such a significant role in Bible prophecy. And let me show you why. First of all, Egypt has always been referred to as the king of the south. And the king of the south, as we see, represents atheism and communism. And if you think about it, you know, at the end of verse 40, yes, we saw the fall of Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, but there's still several communist nations left today. We have China, which is the largest nation in the world. It has over a billion people. And then you have Cuba, Laos, North Korea, and Vietnam. So I believe when it says that the land of Egypt shall not escape, that when this final crisis hits and the king of the north makes his final attack on the world and starts to institute the Sunday law, if you remember that there's going to be signs and wonders that start to take place because God is going to allow the devil to do a lot of miracles and signs and wonders. And people who have said their whole lives in those communist nations, there is no God, there can be no God, everything happened by evolution and we're just here by chance and there are no miracles and this and that. Suddenly when the final crisis hits and you see miracles that are undeniable, there's not going to be an atheist left in this world. They're going to be gone. Yes. Because of the financial situation. Yeah. Right, right. So the point is, is that these communist nations that suppress Christianity and say that there is no God, they're going to have they're going to do a quick turnaround when they see all these miracles taking place suddenly. So I believe that the land of Egypt that does not escape represents the remaining communist nations. And it talks about how the king of the north will have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. You see in verse 43, the king of the north is going to gain economic power over the world. And when you read Revelation 13, we see that 
that no man is able to buy or sell unless you receive the mark of the beast in your hand or your forehead. So here you can see in similar language how papal Rome is going to gain power over the financial element of this world. And then when it talks about the Libyans and the Ethiopians, if you study from the earlier time in the first 30 verses, the Libyans and the Ethiopians represented a last line of defense for the king of the south. Specifically, we talked about the battle of Mark Antony and Cleopatra when they fought against Caesar Augustus. The, or Mark Antony had soldiers stationed in Libya to form a last line of defense for that battle. And I believe that Libya and Ethiopia represent nations that are friendly to communism and atheism through political ties, not necessarily through religious ties. And if you look at the history in recent times, it's been the Islamic nations that tended to be an alliance with with communism, and I think that the Islamic nations are going to fall very easily once these things happen as well. It's going to go very rapidly. So that's just in a brief nutshell, and there's some room for different views on that. I'm just giving you my understanding as I've studied Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia. But now let's get back to things that are much clearer. Verse 44. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, the king of the north. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. So here you have tidings out of the east and out of the north. Now if you were to look at a map, and let me see if I can show you this. So the king of the north has come down, he comes down into Egypt, Libya and Ethiopia are at his steps. So he, and then the glorious land is up here. He's down to the south and west of the glorious land and the holy, glorious holy mountain. And then suddenly, because he's down here to the north and east of where he is, spiritually speaking, he hears a message coming, tidings coming from where God's people that enrages him. And it's interesting where it says it comes out of the north and it also comes out of the east because in Revelation chapter 7, we see an angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. And I believe that the tidings out of the east and out of the north represents the final message to this world, the loud cry message, the sealing message that will call God's people out of Babylon for the final time. And you know, papal Rome is going to be enraged by this message because this message will identify it as Babylon and will identify it as having been overrun by demons and devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the, the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So obviously, when you are trying to represent yourself as the body of Christ on this earth, and then a message goes out that lightens the earth with its glory, and so the whole world is hearing this message, and you find yourself in the center of that message being identified as the power through whom Satan is working, you're obviously not going to like that, and so papal Rome has great fury. So what is the loud cry message? We see it in Revelation 18, 1 through 5, where a mighty angel comes down from heaven. The earth is lightened with its glory. So we see the righteousness of Christ illuminate the earth. And not only that, it identifies Babylon as being fallen, and it tells people to come out of her. 
Ellen White also says, Testimonies, Volume 6, page 19, the message of Christ's righteousness is the sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. So the righteousness of Christ will be part of that message which includes justification and sanctification, a complete package where you see the glory of God illuminate the earth. And she says, this message understood in its true character and proclaimed in the spirit will lighten the earth with its glory. That's manuscript 15, 1888. And we, we see that it proclaims that Babylon has fallen. And Great Controversy, page 603, she says, The scripture points forward to a time when the announcement of the fall of Babylon is to be repeated with the additional mention of the corruptions which have been entering the various organizations that constitute Babylon. A terrible condition of the religious world is here described. And she talks about how the Sabbath will be the great test of loyalty. And then this is the key quote, Great Controversy, page 605. Heretofore, those who have been presented the truths of the third angel's message, have often, those who have presented, have been often regarded as mere alarmists. Their predictions that religious intolerance would gain control in the United States, that church and state would unite to persecute those who keep the commandments of God, have been pronounced groundless and absurd. It has been confidently declared that this land could never become other than that what it has been, the defender of religious freedom. But as the question of enforcing Sunday observance is widely agitated, the event so long doubted and disbelieved is seen to be approaching, and the third message will produce an effect it could not have had before. See, when that starts to take place, where Sunday legislation and agitation, where people are calling for Sunday laws, when that starts to take place, then our message, which has always said that that would happen, our message will gain, gain great power. But here's the question. When that time comes, are you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, going to go out with boldness and declare the three angels' messages and say, the time has come for you to come out of Babylon and join God's remnant church because Jesus is about to come. But if you stay in Babylon, you will receive the mark of the beast and have the plagues poured out upon you. Come out of her and receive Christ's righteousness and receive his seal. Or are you going to choose the easy popular side and say, you know what, since everybody's going along, I think it would be easier just to encourage people to love Jesus and worship him on Sunday. And then I'll still be able to get food and everything will be great. So that's the key. It's not enough to know the truth. It's something that we have to have in our hearts so that when the time comes, we will go forth with boldness to share it. And then she says, Great Controversy 611, 612, the great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God than marked its opening. Servants of God, with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration, will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. And you know what, brothers and sisters? I want to be part of that work. Amen? Amen. You know, it's not my goal to have as successful a life as I can here on this earth, and then when it's all said and done, just barely scrape by and hope to make it into heaven. That's not my goal. My goal is not to be known as a famous doctor, or even a famous preacher for that matter, and I know I'm not, but even then, 
That's not my goal. My goal is simply to do the work of the Lord and I hope to be alive when the latter rain is poured out so that I can have a part by the grace of God in sharing the last message of mercy to this world. But you know what? If we're going to be part of that last message of mercy, we have to be part of that work now. We must be sharing this message now because it's not like we can go from first grade to graduate level school in one day. It's something that we will have to have been growing in each and every day. Now, you know, whenever the Lord gives a true message, and I'm coming down to the last 10 minutes here, when the, whenever the Lord gives a true message, there are always false messengers who try to claim that they have come to an understanding of what the loud cry message is. And, you know, to me it's like, how could you say that what you're saying is the loud cry? Because the Bible clearly shows that the loud cry is Revelation 18, 1 through 5, which is simply a repetition of the three angels' messages. I mean, that's clear. And Ellen White says that righteousness by faith is part of that, which makes sense because the faith of Jesus is part of the third angel's message. So there's no contradiction there. It's got to be righteousness by faith, the three angels' messages under the power of the loud cry, which identifies Babylon as being fallen. But, you know, there are people who teach, and I don't know, have any of you heard people are teaching that the loud cry began on September 11? Maybe this is a United States-only thing. But there might be a few of you who have heard this. And the stuff they say, they have all these complicated charts and they line it up with the Millerite movement and try to get everything to line up perfectly. And they compare Islam in 1840 to 2001. And it's just a bunch of confusion that's coming in. They say that Islam's part of the tidings of the East and they teach that there's this 25-20 prophecy that was on the 1843 chart that they've rediscovered that shows us when God entered into covenant with Israel. But you know, there, there's a problem with that 25-20 prophecy. Ellen White says in Great Controversy, page 351, and Bible Commentary, volume 7, page 971, that the 2300-day prophecy is the longest and the last. So if it's the longest and the last prophetic time period, just, just guess what just got ruled out as a legitimate time prophecy? Because 2300 days is clearly less than 2520, but Ellen White says 2300 is the longest. So if, and to be honest with you, I have heard it here in Trinidad with a few people. I go around to different places, and a few people have said, have you heard about the 2520? And I'm like, oh no, you know about it here too? Oh no, please, if you hear it coming to your church, go back to these quotes, show them very clearly, that's not a legitimate time prophecy. They get it, by the way, from Leviticus 26, where it talks about how God will pass over Israel seven times. But the word times in Leviticus is actually a different use of the word times than when you have like the time, times, and half a time. It doesn't mean a period of time. It's actually like if you're going to do something one, two, three, or four, or five times. It's, it's something very different. And then there are people who teach that keeping the feast days from the Old Testament, that's part of receiving the seal of God. Have any of you ever heard of that? So anyway, there, 
there's all these different things, but Ellen White actually says that she makes an interesting statement here. Letter 20, 1884. God is raising up a class to give the loud cry of the third angel's message. Of your own soul shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. It is Satan's object now to get up new theories to divert the mind from the true work and genuine message for this time. He stirs up minds to give false interpretation of scripture. You know, you may run into people who will just quote the Bible all over, but they're giving a false interpretation on almost every passage that they quote. He stirs up minds to give false interpretation of Scripture, a spurious loud cry that the real message may not have its effect when it does come. This is one of the greatest evidences that the loud cry will soon be heard and the earth lightened with the glory of God. So when I see these people who claim to have the loud cry message, which is different than Revelation 18, 1-5, and it's different than the righteousness of, of Christ, that tells me that they are simply a fulfillment of prophecy, that they are one of the great evidences that the real message is about to go out, and Satan can see that the real message is about to go out, and so he tries to get people to come in and confuse the brethren and the saints and those outside, so that when the real message comes, people are going to say, you know, I've heard people say that this was the loud cry before, I'm not going to go along with this. So we must be careful and rightly divide the word of truth. You know, my wife was just talking to me last night about how the Bible talks about, you know, how we should rightly divide the word of truth, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And she was pointing out, she's like, that means if you wrongly divide the word of truth, you should be ashamed of yourself. So anyway, that was a, a, a gem for my wife last night. So, notice what happens. When the loud cry message goes out, the message with the mighty angel that comes down from heaven enlightens the earth with its glory. The king of the north will go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. In other words, the dragon was wroth with a woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And here we see history repeating itself again. Because if you remember, military power stood on behalf of papal Rome in 508 and Daniel 1131 and then the abomination of desolation was placed where union of church and state came together and then they persecuted the saints for 1260 years. In Daniel 11 verse 40 we see military power with Reagan uniting with papal Rome to bring down Eastern Europe and then we see the abomination of desolation where a Sunday law will take place and then after that we see that persecution revives just as it did during the dark ages. So verses 40 through 45 follow the template of history that verses 30 through 36 provide us. Because papal Rome goes forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And verse 45 says, And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. Now this is interesting. When you plant something, that means to set something up. Papal Rome plants or sets up the tabernacle of his palace. Now when you think of a tabernacle, you think of a religious place of worship. When you think of a palace, you think of a political seat of authority. Here you see papal Rome bringing church and state together for the final time and he sets it up between the seas. The King James says between the seas in the glorious holy mountain, but it's better translated in the, in the original, between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Now this is St. Peter's, so that's their um, tabernacle if you will. This is a palace, but you have church and state uniting. Now let me show you. They set up their church-state union 
between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Now you have the Dead Sea to the east of Jerusalem, the Mediterranean Sea to the west. And if you remember from Bible prophecy, spiritually speaking, Revelation 17:15 identifies seas or waters as representing people. So papal Rome is going to make a church-state union that is set up between the glorious holy mountain and the seas. Or in other words, papal Rome is going to set up a church-state union that divides the entire world or the seas from God's true people, the remnant, who live in the glorious holy mountain. The glorious holy mountain is a worldwide group of people and they are being divided out by this setting up of church and state by papal Rome that divides the rest of the world from them. And I believe that this is the period of time in the Sunday law, the execution of the Sunday law, where a death decree is declared. Because at this point, they have gone forth to destroy. That sounds like a death decree to me. If you go forth to destroy someone, it's not just to throw them into prison. It's actually to put them to death. They go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. He shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. So once, we, once again we see that papal Rome receives a deadly wound. Now... Here Ellen White makes a comment about what happens at this time. Wonderful events are soon to open before the world. The end of all things is at hand. This is Review and Herald, November 19, 1908. The time of trouble is about to come upon the people of God. Then it is that the decree will go forth, forbidding those who keep the Sabbath of the Lord to buy or sell, and threatening them with punishment and even death if they do not observe the first day of the week as the Sabbath. Now notice the very next thing she says. And at that time shall Michael stand up. So when the death decree goes out, Michael stands up. Now, if you recall, in Daniel chapter 7, when the judgment began, the father sat down and the son came to him. And when you study scripture, you always see that Jesus ascended to heaven to, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we saw that Michael is Christ. Suddenly, Michael stands up. This is an indication of the closing of probation. Probation closes when a death decree is formed. But one thing I'm going to show you briefly. When you see what Jesus is doing at the right hand of God, when he stands up, that indicates that the work that he was doing at the right hand of God is finished. So very briefly, he is our high priest seated at the right hand of God. That's Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. What is he doing at the right hand of God? Hebrews 8, verse 6 says he's the mediator of a better covenant. And Hebrews 8, verses 9 through 12 tell us that as the mediator of a better covenant, as our high priest. He's working to write his law into our hearts and minds. When he finishes this work at the right hand of God as our high priest, as the mediator of a better covenant, he will have a commandment keeping people because he has written his law into our hearts and minds. Does that make sense? Yes. Not only that, at the right hand of God, he is the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 describes that. And we are told to run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to exercise faith. Now, if we are to run the race that he ran and to run with patience, we are also to exercise faith, which is 
the faith that he had, the faith of Jesus. When Christ finishes this work at the right hand of God as the author and finisher of our faith, he will have a group of people who have patience and the faith of Jesus, which means that as our high priest and author and finisher of our faith, seated at the right hand of God, when he finishes the work of writing his law into our heart and mind and helping us to run the race, he will have a group of people who keep the commandments of God, have the patience of the saints and the faith of Jesus, and when he finishes that work, he will stand up. Yes. Probation will close because he will have the group of people in Revelation 14, 12, the product of the three angels' messages where it is described, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And Ellen White says in early writings, page 254, the third angel closes his message thus, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That means that the third angel's message has done its work. As he repeated these words he pointed to the heavenly sanctuary and, and, and I won't read the rest of that quote and then Testimonies Volume 8 197 the third angel's message embracing the messages of the first and second angels is the message for this time we are to raise aloft the banner on which is inscribed the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus and you know this picture of Jesus coming in the clouds that is what we are living for because you see Jesus is seated at the right hand of God working to have a group of people that he will allow him to write his law into our hearts and minds and that will look unto him as the author and finisher of their faith so that we can have patience and the faith of Jesus so that when the final test comes and as papal Rome, the king of the north, goes out to make a death decree and tries to get the world to wonder after the beast and to follow laws that they have set up, God will have a group of people for whom he can stand who will keep his law, not man's law, who will exercise the faith of Jesus, not follow man-made creeds, and they will they will live by the faith and patience of Jesus Christ. And that is what God has raised up this second Advent movement, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, to do in these last days. So tomorrow, as we finish the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, we are going to see, as the vision of Daniel 11 and 12 wraps up, just exactly how God has raised up the second advent movement to carry this message to completion and how each one of us have a special role in the completion of God's final work here on this earth. So I'm thankful for the message of Daniel 11 and of the message of the soon coming of Jesus. And again, if you look at it, this is the last thing I will say. Daniel 11 verse 40 happened in the late 1980s and early 1990s. The very next thing in the prophecy of Daniel 11 is that the king of the north is going to enter into the glorious land, which represents the setting up of the Sunday law, and it represents represents when some of God's professed people will be shaken out. We don't know when it's going to happen. I'm not here to set times. We don't know how soon it could be. But the point is, the final movements are going to be rapid ones. And once the King of the North enters into the glorious land, 41, 42, 43, 44, and verse 45 of Daniel 11 are not going to take long. So that means that once verse 41 happens, Jesus is coming in a very short period of time. And if verse 41 is fulfilled in the next couple of years, Jesus will be here very soon. 
Again, I don't know when it's going to be fulfilled. Don't say that I said it was going to happen in the next couple of years. All I'm saying is, is that we are living in the toenails of time on the edge of eternity. And whereas in Daniel 2, you just simply see the image and down to the feet of iron and clay and the toenails, Daniel 11 shows you exactly where we are prophetically. You get more information each time. So praise God for the prophecy of Daniel 11. Why don't we bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this message in Daniel 11 and how you show us what is going to happen before Jesus comes. Lord, we see that we have a work to do to give the three angels messages and to give it to the world with power. We pray that we would be part of that, that we would allow you to sanctify our hearts. May we be ready for that great and glorious day, and I pray that it would be very soon. This is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.